Well, we, we continue in our study uh, of the Gospel of Matthew, and today we come to chapter 5, that is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. If I was perhaps to uh, do a poll, or if someone was to do a poll of, of the general population, and if that poll was the, the question asked was, what is the most well-known uh, extended passage in the whole of scriptures, perhaps this one would be that passage. The Sermon on the Mount is perhaps one of the most well-read or most widely read uh, passages in scripture. I believe it was Gandhi, and I'm starting a sermon by quoting Gandhi, uh, I believe it was Gandhi that said that uh, the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount were, were great. I think he missed the point, as will become clear. Uh, but he, he, was, he was very complimentary of, of the, the teaching uh, of the Sermon on the Mount. It is the first great, great discourse that was recorded for us by Matthew. Matthew, you could divide, and many commentators divide Matthew into uh, sections that are uh, that contain uh, great discourses by our Lord Jesus, and there are five of them. This is the first one. It is a great sermon that has all to do with life in the kingdom of God. But today, and I debated, I, I, I was thinking of doing this, just pausing, going through Matthew and doing this after the summer, um, but I was encouraged by my fellow elder to not stop uh, Matthew at this moment. Uh, so I, I, I haven't structured it as clearly uh, as I would want to. But one of the things that I wanted to do as we come to the, to the Sermon on the Mount is to take our time. It is filled with riches beyond expression. But the danger for us as we come to the Sermon on the Mount, is that we start looking at the trees and lose sight of the forest. Does that make sense? We can focus on particular statements, and there are many of them that are brilliant, that we should take our time meditating about. But we can focus so much on particular statements that we lose track of the whole, that we lose track that this is a sermon that is meant to be considered as a whole. So before we start fixing ourselves in particular details, I thought it would be helpful for us to look at the whole of the forest in order to correct the tendency of overanalyzing and losing track of the, the main message how do we lose track of the main message? Well, there are some particular statements here that if not considered within the context of what Jesus is saying, will lead to, to us uh, developing a very weird way of living in the world. Will lead to us advising people in very uh, inconsistent ways with the rest of Scripture. I won't go there now, but there are statements in the Sermon on the Mount that if analyzed uh, outside of context become just a pretext to wrong behavior. And there is a great danger at this point. 
Martin Lloyd-Jones, I go from quoting Gandhi to quoting Lloyd-Jones, he said about the Sermon on the Mount, and he has a brilliant uh, book that is a collection of his sermons on this, uh, on, this, uh, on, this pass, on this section. He says that the Sermon of, of the Mount, if I may use such a comparison, is like a musical composition, a symphony, if you like. Now, the whole is greater than the collection of the parts. And we must never lose sight of this wholeness. I do not hesitate to say that unless we have understood and grasped the Sermon of the Mount as a whole, we cannot understand properly any one of its particular injunctions. I mean that it is idle and useless and quite futile to confront anybody with any particular injunction in the Sermon on the Mount unless such a person has already believed, accepted, and has indeed already conformed to and is living the Beatitudes. Quite a mouthful, but that is the point. The Sermon on the Mount was not written for unbelievers. There's a lot of polemics here that I won't go into, but there's many different ways of interpreting the, the, the goal and the audience of the Sermon on the Mount. Particularly, I'll just mention one. I come from a brethren background, a dispensational, classically dispensational background. Those are the, the ones, if you don't know, the ones that believe in the, in the rapture and believe in, in, uh, in the literal 1,000-year millennium that comes after the, the rapture and, and uh, sacrifices will be instituted again and the temple will be there in Jerusalem. Uh, that's sort of the things they believe. And in, in the circles where I came from, and Celia as well, uh, you would often hear, that was the norm, you would often hear people say, well, just be careful quoting the Sermon on the Mount. I actually had one elder once turn to me after preaching a sermon where I mentioned a few of the, te uh, the teachings in the Sermon on the Mount, to come to me and say, you need to realize that the Sermon on the Mount was preached for the Jews, it's not for the Christians. And you go... Is it really? Is it really? But the Sermon on the Mount is for disciples. It is for those who are a part of the kingdom. It is not meant to evangelize. It is very wrong if you use the Sermon on the Mount as an evangelistic mechanism. It is not really its intended purpose. It is not to try and force people to live or practice the Sermon on the Mount. It is to show them what life in the kingdom, again, that is the big, big theme of Matthew, is the kingdom of God has come. Jesus is saying what life in the kingdom looks like. What it is like. And I think it is vitally important. And that's why we're going to take our time going through this. Because as I, we look at the church nowadays, and, and again, I'm not quoting, but I'm paraphrasing Lloyd-Jones in his uh, commentary on this passage. As we look at the church nowadays, what is the biggest sin that we see? What is it the biggest uh, failing that the church, that we have nowadays? Lloyd-Jones calls it superficiality, that the church in our modern age has become superficial. It's, it's just a veneer, being a church member. It's just a veneer of uh, being a Christian. 
There is really not much to distinguish the church from the world in our day. And the, the Sermon on the Mount seeks to counteract that by showing us how distinct the kingdom of God is from the kingdoms of this world. It's not that it's just a, a matter or a manner of, of, be, uh, of doing some things different. Oh, I, I'll, uh, being a Christian is not just having a, a, a different kind of a Sunday schedule and the rest of, the, of your life is lived just about like everyone else in the world. Okay, we refrain from doing some outward things. In fact, the Sermon on the Mount focuses not only on the outward things, but what we'll find out as uh, today and as we go through the Sermon on the Mount is that the Sermon on the Mount focuses on the beginning of those outward things. Yes, the Sermon on the Mount has imperatives on how we live and how we speak and how we practice our, or how we perform our actions. But Jesus is going to emphasize that it's more than just the outward it starts in the heart. It's more than just adultery when you go and sleep with another woman. It starts in your heart when you lust after that woman. And the answer, shockingly, but we'll come to that, is not just so much, so don't, don't lust. The answer is trust in God. And that's what is countercultural and shocking about the sermon. What does it mean for us as a church, as, uh, as um, members of the Christian church, uh, uh, what it, does it mean for us as a Christian in a modern, pluralistic, uh, secularized society? What does it mean for us to the Sermon on the Mount? How do you live in that way? How do we live counterculturally? That's what the Sermon on the Mount tells us what is a Christian character what does a Christian look like that's what Jesus is telling us here in the Sermon on the Mount it is a picture of kingdom life with his rule established in our hearts as we are saved by faith now Christ rules over us and these are the rules of living in the kingdom It is important, although uh, I would say it is important as well to emphasize that the Sermon on the Mount is not just merely uh, some kind of exalted ethical teaching, though it is ethical in, the, in its teaching. I'm not saying it's not, but it's more than that. It's a way of life. It's a way of holiness. It's not just that, that, and that's the danger, is that we come to these pages and we look at Jesus' teaching and we think of him as a great teacher. But more than a great teacher, this, this sermon applies to those who have received Jesus as their Savior, as their Redeemer. It is those whose life have, have been transformed by the quickening spirit. It is, it is for those who have been brought back to life spiritually. Jesus is not telling us here what we have to do in order to enter the kingdom of God. To earn our way into the kingdom. To deserve it. In fact, what Jesus is arguing in very shocking language is that until 
Until we understand what the kingdom of God is, we cannot earn it or merit it. We cannot enter into it. That until we understand what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a, uh, someone under this, in subjection to Christ's rule, over as, uh, as someone who has, been, has made Christ the Lord of their hearts, until we understand that, we are actually not even close to being a part of the kingdom. It is a teaching for living in the kingdom. Not to enter into it. It was once said of Jonathan Edwards, the, the great uh, New England uh, t- preacher, that his doctrine was all application and that his, his application was all doctrine. I would say that he learned from our Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. The doctrine that Jesus gives us here is all application, and his application, his imperatives, are all flowing from the doctrine. Why do we call it Sermon on the Mount? Well, because of St. Augustine in the 4th century, about 1600 years ago, he called it this, and the name stuck. It's not called the Sermon on the Mount nowhere in Scripture, although it is helpful for us to have a title, to have a way of looking or addressing what it teaches and how addressing this this passage. Another thing that's so often presented to us as we consider the, the Sermon on the Mount is some people believe it to be a sort of a pie-in-the-sky kind of sermon. They believe it, that this, this is meant to be uh, an ideal Christian life in an ideal world. This is what heaven looks like in in some way but that's not the case jesus is presenting this sermon to us even now not as a christian living an ideal life in the ideal world it's about living as kingdom citizens in a fallen world and that's what what we see in some of the instruction you will be faced with injustice. You will be faced with people hitting you in the face. You will be faced with, with enemies. That's not an ideal world. But the question is, how do we in- interact with it? How do we engage with a world that is constantly barraging us with injustices? And the answer is quite shocking. Jesus is saying, trust in God. Do not worry. Do not be anxious. Do not fret over these things. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who weep. Blessed are those. It's, it's all these paradoxes that seem so countercultural, and we'll see some of them this, this evening. But let me just mention here, before I, uh, we move a little bit forward, uh, something that I've been mentioning from the start, and I think it is important for us to note right at the start, is to grasp what is happening in the whole of the book of Matthew as we come to chapter 5. And we've seen, haven't we, that Jesus is presented to us as the new Adam, as the new Israel, as the, the, the new Abraham. Jesus is presented to us, we've seen already, and we'll, we see it again here now in chapter 5, as the new Moses, or, or better yet, as the better Moses. He is presented to us as, one who, as the one who is like Moses, but is actually greater than the first That the law that Jesus is prescribing is not some set of external code of rules. 
that can be followed uh, to the letter, but it's rather a set of principles, ideas, and motives for conduct. It is a law that is engraved in the heart. That's what Matthew is doing here. He is showcasing to us the fulfillment of, of that promise that we read in Deuteronomy. God had said, I'll send a prophet like Moses from among their brethren. The prophet has come, Matthew is saying. And we need to realize this. Perhaps for us as modern readers of the, the Gospel of Matthew, we, we hear the name Moses and we immediately conjure up images. This, this morning, uh, just before the service, uh, the, the Sunday school service, we were looking at some images for Sunday school. And one of them was actually, uh, for some reason, uh, very Moses-like. And I said that and I, I wasn't too wrong. But when I say conjure up images, it's not uh, visual images but what we think of when we think of Moses and for us moderns we think of Moses we think of this stern uh, lawgiver that's what we're, we immediately re, uh, think about but if you're a Jew hearing these words if you're a Jew thinking of Moses what you're thinking about actually is not just a stern lawgiver he is that he is the one who gave the law or who God used to bring the, the, the Ten Commandments. But Moses, for a Jew, is a much more positive, because we associate the giving of the law with some kind of negativity, and it's not completely uncalled for. The law and grace are opposites um, for us in the New Testament. But for the Jew, when they think of Moses, they actually had a very positive view of Moses. Much more positive than we have as Christians in light of the gospel and the new covenant. For them, Moses is the great deliverer. For them, Moses is the one who brought them out of Egypt. For them, Moses was the one that brought, the, uh, that brought salvation, redemption. Moses, for them, is someone who is a hero. And it should be for us as well. Don't get me wrong. But when we think of Moses, we are immediately attracted to the law-giving aspect. Not for a Jew. Moses was someone who was highly regarded. And Jesus is here presented as a Jew. And not just here in Matthew 5, we've seen Jesus is like Moses in his infancy. He's, he's born and immediately they're trying to kill him. Jesus is like Moses in his fasting. Jesus fa uh, Moses fasted. Jesus fasted. Jesus is like Moses in the miracles that, he, that are associated with his ministry. And in fact, if you continue reading the, the, the book of Matthew, you'll find that Jesus uh, or Moses has a transfiguration uh, kind of event. And Jesus has one that has all kinds of parallels to the, to the one from Moses. And here we see Jesus as the new and better Moses in his teaching. He is the new Moses that has come to lead the people of God in a new exodus. What we, what all those themes that, that we've considered up until now that Israel, although they're back in the land, 
Uh, they're so under the oppressive regime of Rome uh, that the Israelites, although they're back in the land, they actually haven't received the, the presence, the Shekinah glory of God again. The temple is there, but the temple doesn't have the former glory uh, that it had. There is still this sense, if you're a faithful Jew, if you're one of the remnant living in the first century, if you're uh, a Simeon, if you're an Anna, if you're one of those who is eagerly anticipating the coming of the Messiah because you look around at the Jewish society and you say, we're sinning. We, we actually have, are in exile, although we are in the land. If you're one of those, you, you want a new exodus. You want Christ, uh, a new Moses to come. You want the one who was promised, the prophet who was promised to come and deliver the people. And that's what Jesus comes to do, the new exodus. Not just the lawgiver, but the new uh, deliverer, the, the ultimate savior, redeemer, and deliverer. Another element is the covenant. What is Moses uh, for the people of Israel? He's the one who was the mediator of the old covenant. He was him, wasn't he, in, 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 at the foothill of, of Mount Sinai. It was there that the, the old covenant was instituted. For the first time. And, G and, and Moses was the mediator of the old covenant. And now Jesus as the mediator of the new covenant has come. And all these things are picked up in the, in the New Testament. We tend to skim over them and not see them in its brilliance. But they are there. Look at the sermon of Peter in, in Acts. What is he pointing towards? That the prophet that has been promised in Deuteronomy 18 is, has come. When, when Jesus shows up on the scene and it's recorded for us in John, what is the question that they ask of him? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? The prophet being the, meaning the one that was promised all the way uh, in, in Deuteronomy 18. Are you that one? That is what's going on here. The one who is coming to lead his people in a new exodus and to initiate a new covenant. And that's what he's doing now. The new covenant institution will come later. A covenant instituted in his blood. But he is now giving the law of the new kingdom. Only Matthew... Uh, when he, Luke also records for us this sermon or, but only Matthew picks up on this and says look at verse 1 just quickly and seeing the multitudes he went up on a mountain if you're a, a Greek speaking Jew he would immediately pick up on this the word used here to go up on the mountain in the Old Testament uh, Greek translation, is exactly the same words. What, what the phrase is here to associate Jesus with Moses, and he hints as Jesus, uh, to Jesus' identity as a prophet like Moses. And what this tells us is that the words that are coming out of the mouth of Jesus are words that have authority. I will put my words in his mouth, God promised, and he will tell them everything I command him. So Jesus opens his mouth 
and the words that we read are the words of God. They were placed there. They were given to him. It is interesting that it's on the, on the top of a mountain as well. Mountains have figuratively been, not just for the Jewish culture, not just for the ancient Near Eastern culture, but all over the world. Up until this day, mountains are the meeting place between God and man. They, they, they are a meeting between the heavens and the earth. Whenever you see temples being built in antiquity, uh, whether it be in ancient Near East, in, the, in Europe, uh, in Africa, in, in South America, you see temples being built. Where are they always built? It's not in some kind of abyss, some kind of canyon all the way down in the bottom. No. It's always in the tallest mountain they can find. Why? Because it has often been seen as the, the meeting place between God and, and heaven, uh, between earth and heaven. It's the place of reconciliation. Eden was on a mountain. And Jesus is the new man establishing the new Eden. The temple was on a mountain and Jesus is the new temple. With, from which the law of the Lord flows like the living waters. All of these themes are coming uh, to the fore in this passage. So what is the main message? What is the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount? Well, if I had to, resu- uh, to summarize it into one sentence, is that the kingdom of God is an upside-down kind of kingdom. You might say... Well, surely the kingdom of God is the right side up. And I would say yes. But in the eyes of the world, as we read through this sermon, we'll find that the kingdom of God is an upside down kingdom. It is a pyramid that has been inverted. The Lord says, blessed is he who shows or or who brings nothing before God. Blessed is he who those who are poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who have nothing to bring before God. And yet, blessed is he who owns up his sin in his presence. Blessed is he who gives up his his rights instead of oppressing those who claim rights that are not even theirs. Blessed is he who gives uh, to the needy and not he who exploits to enrich himself. What is it that the world does? The world is all about these things. And Christ is saying, no, it's the other way around. Blessed is he who builds bridges of reconciliation that brings people together, not those who dig deep abysses of enmity between them. Blessed are those who love and practice justice. Those who love and practice justice. Not those who find loopholes in the law to get away or to enrich or to further themselves. That's what the world tells us. There was a, recently a very famous politician that said, uh, when he was accused of uh, evading tax laws, he said, oh, because I'm smart. And he said it with all the pride in his heart. It's like, uh, that's because I'm smart. Everyone does it. I do it as well. That's the kingdom of this world. Find a a tax loophole and and take advantage of it. You're blessed. God says no. It's loving and practicing. 
Blessed is he who mourns as he seeks holiness. Not he who is happy uh, with all his lasciviousness. In the kingdom of God, being persecuted for righteousness' sake is better than doing justice and posing as a benefactor, uh, than doing. Let me restate that. In the kingdom of God, being persecuted for the sake of justice is better than being unjust, even though the world sees you as a benefactor. The ethics of the kingdom are not relaxed uh, uh, demands of the law to surrender to unbridled licentiousness. As Jesus says, he came to fulfill, not to destroy, not to abolish the law, not to nullify the law, but he came to fulfill the law. In the kingdoms of the world, what is it that happens? The strong prevail. The ones who have influence and money and power, they prevail over the weak. And the power of vengeance crushes the innocent. In the kingdom of God, we read that forgiveness is greater than vengeance. And the search for reconciliation is better than the vindication in the court of law or the court of public opinion. In the kingdoms of the world, men are satisfied with having right actions. If I only do the right things, that's very good and, and well. That's what the kingdom of the world says. The right actions. If, if I are seen doing the right thing in, the, in accordance with law, I'm fine. But in the kingdom of God, even the motivations of the heart are judged and accounted for. To hate someone is to kill them. To lust after a, a woman is to commit adultery with her. If the courts of the, the earth can only judge words and actions, in the courts of the, king, of the kingdom of heaven, even the intentions are seen. In the ethics of the world, marriage is increasingly weakened and, and divorce is, is the new normal. You get married already thinking about what, it, what it's going to look like when you get divorced. It's shocking. I, I remember having a, a co-worker, a, a, a woman, uh, and she was getting married, and we were talking about her marriage, and she was saying, oh, I'm going to, the, to, the, to, the, to see the lawyer this week with my fiancé. And I said, why is that? Oh, because we, we want to make sure that everything is in order uh, with, with, with regards to who, what belongs to who, because... Uh, we might get divorced at some point and we don't want to uh, have shared ownership of things. And I, I just thought to myself, you still haven't got married and you're already predisposed to the divorce. That's the world we live in, but not in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, marriage is upheld as a sacred institution, as something that is beautiful. In this world, sex has become a, ban a, a banal thing, a trivial, a promiscuous thing. There's all kinds of sexual aberrations that are not only allowed, but that are uh, ex exalted and applauded. You come to the Sermon on the Mount and you see that in the kingdom of God, purity of heart and faithfulness in relationships are required. To this world... Staging 
as if you're going down a catwalk, uh, a procession to show up yourself uh, in vanity. It's, it's what is applauded. Uh, you, you look at what, what kids these days watch on, on, the, on their, I would say television. My kids don't watch the television. I don't think kids nowadays watch that much television. It's all YouTube celebrities and streamers and the like. You look at what they, they watch and you see it's all vanity. It's all looking, appearing to be something that they are not. That's what the kingdoms of this world say. Not what they really are, but in the kingdom of God. True spirituality neither seeks the limelight nor the applause of men. Because it aims exclusively at pleasing God, who sees everything in secret and searches everyone out. Jesus teaches us this. In the ethics of the world, men judge recklessly while they expose the sins of their neighbor, promoting themselves. But in the kingdom of God, the individual is strict in dealing with his own sins and yet loving and charitable in dealing with the sins of the others. That's shocking. But that's what Jesus teaches us, not to look into our, our neighbor's Sin when we have a, a beam stuck in, a, in, in, our, in our eye. This world says that it's great to accumulate riches, to build financial empires, to have ostentatious economic power. But Jesus teaches us that in the kingdom of God, true richness is to store up riches in heaven to treasures in heavens where thieves do not steal and moth does not corrode. In the kingdoms of the world, men live anxiously for things while the children of God seek first the kingdom of God and everything else is added onto them. See, what matters for the world and to our world is appearance. And that's why foolishness is the rule. Men hear the truth, but they do not put it into practice. What Jesus says, they're building their houses on sand. They're building their houses on on, on foundations that cannot last what jesus says is that in the kingdom of god it is not enough to hear or to know it is necessary to practice it is not enough to build your house you must build it on the rock it is not enough to uh, have a house that is secure in the eyes of men but jesus says you need to have a house that has been built on the firm foundation that even when the storms of life come, in the, even when this life is ended, this, the house still remains. You see, the kingdom of God is in direct opposition to the kingdom of this world. The kingdoms of the world are applauded now. The kingdom of God seems small, at least in this region of this world. And the kingdom of, of the world is seemingly 
flaunting their power, their wealth, their gain. But the reality is that in God's time, they will be helpless. All that, that, that veneer of victory, all that, that success they, that they seemingly have will be turned into reproach at the coming of the Lord. All the kingdoms of this world will pass away, but the kingdom of God, even though it is now upside down, seemingly, it is the right way up. It will never end. One of the ways for us to understand this sermon is to understand that it is righteousness that is what is needed. And this sermon is all about righteousness, being right with God. What Jesus is saying, this is the righteousness that God intends for us to pursue. Jesus teaches us how to keep the law as such. But Jesus says to us that ultimately the law is kept not by doing, but by resting and trusting. In Matthew 6, 34, and I'll close right at the middle or right close to the middle of the sermon. Jesus says this. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Jesus is assuring those who hear this sermon that if they pursue the righteousness that is described, they will have everything they need for life. That they can lose all of all of the worldly possessions in pursuance of God's righteousness and everything will be supplied for them. Jesus is saying, trust in God. You might not be able to perform these things fully, perfectly, but pursue God and he will give all that is needful to you. Give your coat to the one who asks for a shirt. Go a second mile. Give the other cheek. It's all practice. It's all practical instruction. But all these things will result in constant deprivation. Very much like we were considering this morning. What will you pursue? Your own comfort and security or will you pursue God? And his righteousness. Will you give the second slap to the person? Will you love your enemy? Perhaps you're saying, oh, that's too hard of a task. It, will all, it would be very easy if we lived in a perfect world to do these things. But we don't live in a perfect world, do we, Jesus? We live in a very hard, gruesome world. And we have to cut some corners. We have to break some eggs to defend ourselves. You don't know what it's like. Does he not? Does he not know what it's like? The question for us is, do we trust the Father to give us what we need? 
as we do what Jesus says? Do we trust that we will still have clothes if we give all our clothes away? Do we trust that we will still have a face if we allow ourselves to be punching bags? What Jesus is saying is, trust your Father. Obey my commandments. Trust your Father and live a righteousness that surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Trust your Father and live a righteousness that is the righteousness of faith. Trust faith. That is what Jesus requires.